0: Welcome to the Unstoppable Recording Machine Podcast, and now your host, A.L. Levy. This show is brought to you by URM Academy, the world's best education for rock and metal producers. You know us for nail the mix, but today I'm here to tell you about Ultimate Drum Production, a brand new course that's going to completely transform the way you think about and record drums. You're going to be hearing a lot more about it in the coming weeks, but in the meantime, head over to ultimatedrumproduction.com to learn more. Welcome to the URM podcast. I'm Al Levy. Today I've got the one and only Dan Corniff with me. He's a producer, mixer, engineer who has worked on lots of bands that you know, like Paramore, Breaking Benjamin, Papa Roach. I mean, the list goes on and on and on. Um, he is incredible, he's a genius, he makes his own gear. And it doesn't just stop there. As you'll hear in this episode, this is a guy that is always challenging himself. And for people who are first starting out, who get discouraged when maybe their mix isn't as good as they thought it would be, or clients don't react to their work the way they want, or whatever it may be, I want you to pay attention to this episode and realize that even dudes at the very top of their game have their doubts. And so since... It's true that people at the top of their game at the beginning of their career all have their doubts. One of the big things that differentiates the people who make it further and the people who don't is in how they learn to deal with those doubts. And so I think that this episode will be good for any of you guys that have wanted to just throw in the towel out of disappointment or let down. It's not necessarily the best idea. Sometimes it is, but not necessarily so. I'll shut up now. We'll get into the podcast. Here goes. Dan Korneff, welcome to the URM podcast. Uh, it's Thank awesome you. to have you back because, well, first of all, because we love you and your work, but you were the first guest we ever had on almost three years ago now.
1: Wow. That's, that's exciting. It's just,
0: it's crazy that it's been that long and also time flies. It does.
1: Yeah.
0: <laughs> it does. I can't believe it was three years ago. It was 2015. Holy mackerel! <laughs> yeah, we launched March of 2015. That's so we probably recorded it in February of 2015. Yeah, yeah. So um, amazing. Uh, has has a lot changed for you since then? I know that we haven't talked too much since then, so I was wondering if you could give us an update as to what you've been up to. You built any
1: new gear? Anything amazing yeah. going on? I mean. As far as audio goes, everything's pretty much about the same. Nothing really changes here. You know, I just keep making records, mixing records, uh, you know, nonstop kind of thing. Um, the one thing that, that has changed um, is I've, I've spent a lot of time over the last year uh, working on a couple of new, uh, new venture ideas. And uh, and so, that, you know, it's taking a lot of time as far as um, the manpower needed. And I don't have a huge staff of people either. It's just me, so trying to uh, create different things is a very, very difficult task.
0: Is this something you can share with us? What yeah, you doing, sure. Or is it all top secret? Okay, cool. Yeah,
1: no, absolutely. So uh first, first thing I put a lot of time into, um, which a lot of people know from, from seeing online, is I love DIY audio stuff. And yes. um, you know, I have a huge passion for that and, and learning electronics and stuff. So I started a company a while ago uh, called Classic PCB. And the whole idea is uh, getting classic circuits... <laughs> Into people's hands, you know, stuff that they can build on their own and uh, enjoy doing. So that's that's the first thing I've been doing, and, and that takes a lot of time too. Is is designing the circuit boards, prototyping the circuit boards, uh, making sure everything works, building revisions. You know, you go through two or three pieces of uh, of revisions of the same piece of gear, and uh it, it gets to be pretty daunting when there's 12 or 13 different circuit boards you're working on. So, that's the first thing I've been working on. And the second one is is software design. So, a little ways back, I put out a little drum library called uh uh Back to School with a company called that. Basic Drum Co. And uh yeah, and and that was a lot of fun uh learning contact scripting and, and stuff like that. It was a lot of fun. Um, and it takes a lot of time and, and learning how to do the artwork and everything. Um, and so I have a bunch of libraries that, that are about to come out. But again, it, it comes down to manpower and, and just being myself and, and uh, you know, just trying to learn new, new things. And, and uh, these new libraries, I'd like to come out uh, as virtual instruments instead of relying on another piece of software. So um yeah. Yeah, so it's been a lot of a lot of learning of C++ and juice and you know all these other things that go into uh into design It's crazy. So how do you uh how do you balance that with making
0: records cuz I mean I know that for us over here at URM it's uh basically you know we can't None of us can really do that anymore, Um, and I know that like Joey's got JST and there's Drumforge as well, but I mean, just URM alone is so intense that, you know, there's not much else you can really do. It's tough to do multiple things. Um, How do you you manage that? Because making records is a full-time thing.
1: Oh, absolutely, full-time thing. So, for me, uh, it comes down to whatever my ADD is focusing on at that moment. So, for, like, the last <laughs> week—oh, nice. and it also helps that, that my, my wife is a, a teacher. So, I'm up at, like, 6 a.m. every morning, and, uh, you know, I just stay up as, as long as it takes. So, from, like, 6 to 8, 6 to 9, you know, I'm sitting there either designing a circuit board or, or uh, designing software— Programming, coding—you know, whatever, whatever it may be—and then uh, I walk the dog, and I run into the studio and work with the band until midnight or one a.m., and then uh, uh, head home and try to jot down some ideas of this other shit I've been thinking of, other idea, you know, other business plans and stuff, and, and then I go to bed and I get back up at six and start all over again. So basically, I don't sleep that much. So five hours a night. Uh, have you always for, pulled five hours a night? I mean, I have for the past uh, shit, probably fifteen years, five or six hours. Um, okay. And uh, yeah, yeah, it's basically what I run on, and then I take uh, Sundays off and recharge and hang out with the wife.
0: Did did you always keep it that methodical, um, or is that something that you've employed recently?
1: Well, it hasn't always been the same. The schedule's been the same, although, um, you know, five years ago, I had a studio that was 70 miles away from my house. So I spent a good three, three and a half hours each day commuting. So that took up all of my time, and I didn't have time to do anything other than make records. So about five years ago, I I opened up a studio that's like right around the corner from my house, and uh, that's really allowed me to, to do more.
0: So you what, what would you do in those three and a half hours a day of commute?
1: Dude, you know what really pisses me off is that looking back on it, uh, I did that commute for like eight years, and I didn't do a single fucking thing. I could have learned another language. <laughs> I, I could have read audio books, you know, something. And I just spent most of my time like on the BQE just fucking cursing and, and punching my steering wheel and <laughs> yelling at people. Yeah. <laughs> uh, <laughs> Yeah, I, I was really upset I didn't do anything. I guess like la- the first
0: year of Nail the Mix, um, I lived in Atlanta, and we shot mainly in Florida. And <laughs> this was when we really didn't have very many subscribers, and so I felt guilty about asking the company to buy me an airplane ticket. So I would just drive from Atlanta to Orlando every single time. Um and I mean, it's not a monster drive, but it's eight hours. and if you do it two times or three times a month um, or four times, it uh, it gets crazy after a while. And I found that the only thing that kept me wanting to actually do it is that I would listen to books the whole time or podcasts or something. And that actually made me look forward to the to the drive. Uh, and now I fly. To Orlando for those, and it's a fifty-minute flight, and I think I like that way better. But I do kind of miss yeah. the eight hours by myself, being able to just listen to information nonstop.
1: Right, right. Good for you, man. I'm glad you're able to do that.
0: Well, not anymore. Um, now I just, uh, <laughs> I just, I, I don't know. I, I can't. Uh,
1: you have seven more hours to yourself now.
0: Y- yeah, I can't bring myself to do that anymore. Um, I kind of think that was a moment in time, and that that's about. That's about it. So it sounds to me like, uh, and I think that this is pretty impressive, is that you're kind of, sounds like you're learning every different aspect that goes into creating these products. Whereas I know that some people like to just team up. If they don't know how to code it, um, they will find someone who knows how to code it, not always learn to code it themselves. Um, right, what what right. are your thoughts on doing all that stuff yourself? Is it just a product of your curiosity as a person, the way your brain works? or um, I'm just curious about what leads you to want to take on all the different tasks.
1: For me, it, it's not necessarily about you know, getting a product out or, or getting stuff out. Uh, it, it's about the learning. And uh, if I can create something along the way that, that someone else would use, then that's awesome. Um, but also running businesses like this, like you know, it's, it's actually really good to know what goes on under the hood all the time. Absolutely. Um, so that way you have a good idea of, of what someone else is doing or when you make requests about your product, you can know if it's a realistic request or not. Um, you know, And then also kind of have managed the project uh, better along the way. Um, so I'm not not quite there yet but you you know exactly what that's about
0: well yeah I have a perfect example Um, so we just did an event called the URM Summit last year where uh, basically it was like four days with a bunch of speakers and subscribers and listeners came in from all over the world it was super awesome Uh, we all stayed at the same hotel and um, there was a lot of coordination involved and It's the kind of thing that you should probably hire a pro to do. But (laughs) I just decided that for year one and probably year two, I'm going to handle that internally and take most of it upon myself and really learn what goes into this so that we can move on to having a planner uh, maybe from years three and on. But uh, I'll know exactly what goes into it so that I make sure that... um, that they're just going to amplify whatever we could have done. Um, And I don't mean micromanage, but just so that we understand everything that the planner's trying to do or what the goals are or how it all works. Because I've noticed, um, at least in my experience, like for instance, if you're in a band and you hire a publicist and you don't really understand how the game works, of getting publicity, like you don't understand that a lot of articles, for instance, are written about People or artists who advertise in the magazine, for instance. And so, you know, if you want to get on the cover, you want to have a feature, it helps to have a full page ad and it helps to build those types of financial relationships, things like that. That if you don't understand how it works, it's going to be hard for you to get the most out of your relationship with that publicist because. um, Sure. You're, it's almost like you've got them working with one hand tied behind their back, and I kind of feel like this is the same sort of thing. Like, how can you really, it, like, how can you help a coder achieve your vision for a plugin if uh, you can't speak his language? Right. Yep. But I mean, That's it. it's really, really time-consuming to learn code. Is that a Have you always been interested in? code and computers
1: uh, I, I I guess I have I mean my uh, my mother was a programmer and, and her whole side of the family were, were programmers um, so okay. I grew up around computers and it makes it makes a lot of sense to me although I didn't dive into it as deep as they did and um, I sort of regret it you know as as my my parents were learning programming that you know they would invite me to come down and just hang out in the computer room and I, I never did you know I was too busy throwing a stick around or something, and uh, hmm. you know I should have done it. I should have just sat down and, and saw see what they were doing oh, well.
0: do, do you think do you think that even so that it rubbed off somehow? Oh, I'm sure it did
1: <laughs> I'm, I'm sure it, at and some the point the re- reason I'm
0: asking is because um, I've heard about about how you work from people who have worked with you that you're super super precise about everything and uh, no detail left untouched. And I know that lots of producers are like that and engineers are like that, but um, the way people described it made me think a lot more of people like like my partner, Joey, or this guy who actually edits these podcasts is a great engineer and editor, John Douglas. Like both those guys are computer people. And so the way that they approach computers and software, really, you can tell in the way that they engineer. Um, and they're always really good at fixing computer problems, but and that helps yeah. uh, stupid people like me. But you can just <laughs> tell from the way that they organize their their mind or their workflow when it comes to audio that the computer thing is rubbed off. So I'm wondering if it's in some way rubbed off on you, in your opinion.
1: Uh, I'm sure it has. Yeah, I, th- I think it has. And uh, you know, when you experience or see things like that, you sort of learn... You know the basics of troubleshooting and and signal flow, even in software. You know, software everything has some sort of flow; it goes from one thing to another. And j- just having the basic understanding of that, uh, I think, is is super helpful in anything, anything that you're going to do, whether it be audio or, or computers or you know, trying to start your car when when it's broken.
0: <laughs> yeah, absolutely. So I think it's interesting that that you're um, making plugins, especially because. You make the gear as well, and there's actually a piece of yours of uh, an eleven seventy six in the u r m control room right now um oh hell yeah but but yeah it's it's really good. I know that a lot of guys that are very much into making analog gear and analog gear in general aren't too uh i guess it, it, things are changing now, but they're not too thrilled with plugins i guess um Not always, at least. I'm wondering where your opinion on that lies and what's leading you to go into making digital audio products like plugins.
1: Well, I mean, I'm sitting in front of racks and racks and racks of gear and an SSL console. And uh, I mean, I think that kind of tells you where, where my mind is as far as what I think about plugins, not to say that I don't use them. I use my fair share of plugins. Um, But, uh, you know, I I think that the analog stuff sounds better. And um, until proven uh, so, I'll keep doing it the old way, Um, you know, until the new way sounds just as good, if not better. And, uh, uh, you know, the idea behind the software stuff is that I think that, you know, when you deal with music all the time, you're dealing with a creative part of your brain. And uh, sometimes it's fun to be able to create something that is is a creative product, an art product, but it uses the other side of your brain. Um, different, different kind of thinking, um, you know, kind of like puzzle building and stuff like that. And also at the same time, I kind of look at it like, well, maybe... I can think of something or a way to program something or a way to do something that, that no one's done before that maybe does sound a little more analog-ish. You know, there are a lot of companies that do great jobs at it. I mean, uh, I'm not going to lie. I've used that, that gain reduction plugin here and there. Uh, and uh, the Finality plugin is awesome. And uh, UAD does awesome, awesome stuff. And, and it sounds really, really good. And if you don't have the real thing, you know, those those guys kinda help you get through it. But at the same time, uh, you know, maybe there's something I can do that's that's a little bit different. And uh and, and there are tons of people. There's obviously a wider audience for for people that can afford a plug-in compared to say a f five thousand dollar compressor. So, you know, it's it's catering to a just slightly different audience. Absolutely.
0: And I think there's a lot to be said for of being able to just get ideas down quickly sure you, you know like speaking of the creativity not just the not just what goes into building something new and coming up with something other people haven't come up with but there's uh, there's something great about being able to uh, I guess you know you' writing or something bring up a template that sounds pretty good you know everything's pretty much kind of dialed in to a degree, at least for the meat and potatoes of what you're probably going to write. And to not have to spend time worrying about setting that up every single time is uh, quite awesome, I think.
1: Uh, oh, um, absolutely. But then
0: that brings up something we talked about last time, which is that, and I'm curious if you still have it set up this way, you told us that your board and your outboard um it basically is set up like a template and that stuff stays perma wired from you know like certain outboard to certain channels et cetera et cetera, so that you don't have a huge turnaround time when recalling mixes or uh going from song to song for instance
1: yeah uh, that is still correct um being it's funny to say this, but being on on an analog console with with gear is as at a disadvantage uh as far as moving at the pace of what people need today. You know, people expect you to be able to uh, click a button and uh, turn up a hi-hat, a half dB, and then export the session again. And in the analog world, I mean, it's just not that simple. But, um, you know, a few years back, I did separate my recording and my uh, mixing paths um, to sort of speed up the efficiency. So, yeah, the console is always set for mix. I have dedicated channels for, for everything, and... You know, I keep pumping the same audio out of the same channels and very, very similar signal paths. And not to say that I don't experiment because about three months ago, I switched up my, my setup as far as my routing on the console. Man, life-changing for me. Completely changed up my sound. That made it a lot easier to work with. So, you know, it's like you, you keep to what you know, and, and as time progresses, you sort of update things and and um, make the things that are lacking, you, you try to make them better.
0: Have, uh, can you talk a little bit about what you did change about the setup that made your life Absolutely.
1: easier? Absolutely. Yeah, so, so I have an 8000 series SSL, which gives me uh, two stereo buses and four audio groups, as well as, you know, tons of... Different direct buses and stuff like that. For the longest time, I was using my stereo bus one for music, stereo bus two for vocals, uh, and printing them separately as, as two different sets of tracks, and then bouncing them together, and that was my mix. And recently, I, I thought about things that were lacking my mixes, and uh, you know, sometimes I would I would tuck like a, a drum stem up underneath my main mix to kind of open up everything and. Um I th- thought, you know, there's got to be a way to do it on my console, so it's all all in one. So I started mm-hmm. using uh, my, my four stereo groups on the console as four separate mix buses. So I have one set as my main mix bus, uh, which I really smash up with, with two SSL bus compressors and then I have, uh, like a mix B, which is an uncompressed mix bus that I'll tuck some other stuff up underneath there, maybe some cymbals, uh, maybe a, a drum or something like that to kind of, uh, let those sit on top and then, uh, Another stereo bus for any sort of special effects like eight oh eights and reverse cymbals and stuff like that, and then another stereo bus for uh, for all of my vocals.
0: So, a uh, question about stereo buses one and two. So, like you said that on two, sometimes you'll tuck in cymbals and you know drum elements that you want to sit on top. Uh, are those molted out like from? Are they also on one and then also on two, or are they? or will the symbols only be on two for instance
1: uh no they're they're molted out. so i'll do my full mix on say mix a mix bus a mm-hmm. okay got and it. then on yeah and then mix bus b i'll use an aux or something to send a little something extra or the small fader on my ssl to send mm-hmm. a little extra of signal to of the same signal to bu- to the uncompressed bus
0: okay and then vocals and then
1: effects exactly yep okay and then and it all funnels uh... out of one stereo output through my SSL compressor, uh, and then I print it back in on my computer.
0: What uh, what led you to make this change?
1: Well, I had, um, it, it, I guess it was more of a, an efficiency thing, where before I was having to print two stereo tracks at one time, so my, my mix bus was printed on its own track, my vocal bus was printed on a separate track, and then I would use stems to kind of tuck up underneath. So just the idea yeah. of being able to keep it all into one one file was a lot more attractive to me, and it's achieving the same results. That uh, that makes a lot of sense. Uh, how, how often do you
0: rework things like that to improve them?
1: I'd say probably, uh, I mean, it, it takes me until I get pissed off enough about doing what I'm doing currently. So maybe every two years or so, I say, God damn it, I, you know, I hate doing this, I hate having to do this. There's got to be some way to do do it better. And, you know, I just take some time and do it.
0: So, like, when something is a pain point and it's become enough of a pain point that you can no longer take it, then go for it. I think that it's interesting that you said every two years because that's that's a pretty big operation and not quite that much elapsed time in between. It just goes to show, uh, I guess, the level of... Evolution that you're always striving for. I think one thing that a trap that a lot of I'm just going to say people because it's not just engineers, it's musicians and just people in their lives will get to one plateau and kind of just stay there for a long, long time, maybe forever. So like, you know, the first time that they start getting decent results or something, they'll just lock into that setup and that's that, or kind of the same way that you know, people who grew up listening to one style of music, you know, they will not deviate from that, right. Or you know, in their lives. I, I just think it's very interesting that you keep on updating the setup, even though I mean, it's not you've been making great records for a long time, so it's not like the setups before that didn't work.
1: Uh, I they mean, obviously, that is, that is did, very they obviously true. did work, they, they did work. Uh, you know, I've, I've made a lot of. of records and a lot of a lot of really good records uh, a certain way and uh you know sometimes you kind of get get tired of of doing the same thing or at the same time you know maybe a lot of other people love that stuff that you did but you think it's fucking dog shit and Mm -hmm. uh and you want to make it better so there's you should always be trying new things always
0: you know i i think that it's Hey, kind of interesting what you just said about how some people might praise you for something, but you think it's dog shit. Uh, I think it's just bad to listen to too many people's opinions, good or bad, uh, because, you know, kind of if you listen to them when they're praising you, then you should listen to them when they're uh, trashing you because it, you shouldn't be selective about it. But I think they're both just as inaccurate. I don't think that anyone can really know how far you could push it but yourself and even if people think that something's great if you know that you can make it even greater then why not i mean i know that it would drive me nuts to know that i could make something better and not just do it
1: (laughs) yeah oh no absolutely i mean prime example is back in the day uh working working on that Paramore record and, and putting the final touches on the mixes and sending it out and, and being really, really proud of it. Um, and, you know, they post a video online. Everything's great. And then you start looking at the comments and you're like, oh, these drums sound terrible. Everything sounds fake. It sounds like a one-shot, you know? Like, all these, <laughs> like, dogging comments that, like, they kept me up at night. And, uh, you know, and it ended up people you know just time tells people loved that that drum sound and then how inaccurate some people's opinions may actually be and uh it's from that moment on that i just i stopped reading youtube comments and shit like that because first of all it's they're always hurtful there's never like you know anything that's amazing and uh you know, if if I do see a comment that's just like, oh, this is amazing, this is the best thing I've ever heard, then I start thinking, well, what the fuck does this guy go? This guy doesn't know shit. Maybe this song's terrible. He doesn't know. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, you go back and forth, and eventually you just stop stop reading that shit.
0: It's really not healthy <laughs> to go
1: looking at it's, it. It's not. But at the same time, you know, it's, it's hate like that that sort of drove me for a while. To, to be better and, and you know, even p- know people love the stuff I was doing, um, it could always be better and, uh, l- you know, listening to other influences and other things and trying to figure out, well, what, what actually is better and, um, and trying to shape your stuff to, you know, to be what you think is a better version of what you are. You know, that's the part that's really tough is that everything is so subjective. You can make the record that you think is the most amazing thing ever, and sonically is superior to anything you've ever heard, and you know, and then and people listen to it and go, "Yeah, it's okay, it's all right." <laughs> so you never, you never really know.
0: <laughs> uh, I mean, and also, you know, along with that, you could make the record that you think is like uh, the just art in lots of different ways, from songwriting to. Mix to production, everything, every aspect is just the best thing you've ever done, and then it doesn't really sell at all, and nobody cares. Yeah, uh, so you know, you, you can't really predict those things. The, the The hate online is an interesting topic for me because, um, just because with what we do, there's always haters. Um, we, you know, anytime that you sell education or digital products or anything like that, there's a built-in hate crowd for that kind of stuff. And I've learned a lot from watching my partner Joey and also uh, watching how, for instance, like someone like Steven Slate deals with it because he gets tons of brutality all the time. Um, and so does Joey. Like people are just shit talk him all day long on the internet. But... They make great products, and lots of people buy them, and lots of people love them. and the companies keep on growing. And I've noticed with uh, when we get some of that hate online for for whatever reason that it doesn't actually affect the way that things are going. And so there's no reason to put myself in a bad mood over something that doesn't matter because we keep getting new students they keep on learning how to be better. They're happy with it. And that's that's what we're trying to do. We're trying to help people get better. And right. we can't please everybody, obviously. So I just find that for the most part, it's good to just ignore it because you're just accepting negativity into your life that really doesn't even affect the outcome of what you're working on.
1: That's right. Unless, Unless they're writing you, your you, checks, it doesn't matter.
0: <laughs> yeah, exactly. And And at the same time, if you believe the negative feedback too much uh you know you can put yourself in a less than ideal mental state for doing good work oh absolutely so so it's just uh I, i think it's just good to avoid that stuff but you're absolutely right in that it sucks to see it like i don't care who you are it sucks to see it and i've seen you know even movie stars and politicians who are like you know 80,000 trillion times more known than any of us in audio. and You know, the amount of hate that they get and they say they never read comments or reviews or any of that stuff right. because why Why do it?
1: It's true, it's true. I yeah. mean, I'm, I'm my own worst enemy. I never think that anything I do is good. And, uh, like, for instance, I, I, I was just out out of work for almost two weeks uh with the flu and i, I got back in on on monday uh yesterday i think and uh My wife texts me. She's like, how's your first day back? I'm like, it fucking sucks. Like, one second, I think I'm a genius. The second second, I'm I'm a fucking idiot. Like, this is the worst shit I've ever heard. And then I'm a genius again. And then I'm an idiot. Like, I I don't need someone's shitty YouTube comments on top of that already. Like, I I can trash myself pretty well. I'm I'm good at it. (laughs) I don't (laughs) need someone
0: else's help. tell me you're the pro. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> no one's going to outdo you with your own personal self hate. Uh, I, I feel I feel the exact same way. No one's going to hate me as much as I can do for myself. Uh, I'm pretty how do pretty good how at you it. deal with that? That's I'm actually curious about that because I I don't know if you've noticed. I know that you're in our group and every once in a while you post. I don't know if you've noticed that every now and then someone will be like, "How do you deal with thinking that you suck?" or I. Can't get over the fact that I think my work is terrible and I don't want to go on. Um, you know, there are posts like that, and would try to tell people to just just keep doing more work or go walk the dog or something, but that's a perfectly natural thing. And the best engineers I know all feel that way.
1: oh, absolutely. Uh, how,
0: how do you deal with the with the with the downs?
1: dude the downs are tough, man, because it's it's not like, you know, it's not like this is a fucking game. You know, this is how I support my family, and, and this is what I do for a career. And uh, you know, when when you think about you know how much you suck, it it gets pretty dark, and it it's, and it, it gets rough. Um, you know, for me, I just kind of look back at, at you know the projects I've done, and and at a certain point, just have to be happy with uh, you know with with what you're doing. And, and not really caring about what, what anyone else says or what everyone else is doing. Um, you know, just live in the moment and kind of make whatever you can do, whatever you're working on currently, make it the best thing you've ever done. And, um, you know, and sometimes that's hard um, because after, like for me personally, when I finish a project there's a good week of like oh this is this is amazing this is the best thing I've ever done this is you know life changing material and then you know a week later you listen back to it you're like oh this is fucking dog shit like why did I do that why did I do this I can't fucking hear shit you know maybe I should just quit <laughs> you know it happens it, it happens to everybody but you just kind of use that as as motivation to, to get better and uh, what I've learned recently is, is when I'm really down I find that I sort of look at things at a big you know a larger perspective of like oh i'm very i'm unhappy with this mix or i'm hap- unhappy with the way this song turned out and um you know learning how to break it down into little pieces like okay well what don't you like about it oh well the symbols are are hashy or you know guitars are too low and you know you, you sort of individualize all the issues and uh you know, take it to heart and just kind of tweak a little bit here, tweak a little bit there. And then, then all of a sudden, you know, you're back to being a genius again. And, uh, you know, when things get hard, just just break it down. You know, that's, that's interesting because I
0: definitely think that one of the things that works is to remind yourself that uh, you are not your work. So even if you don't like that mix or whatever it is that you're working on... And you think it's it sucks for whatever reason. That doesn't mean that you suck. And I know that uh, since this is both a, kind of our livelihoods, but also an art, it's very very hard to sometimes separate um, separate the personal side of it because art's a very personal thing. I mean, obviously, there's the science side to audio, but, you know, art, it's a mix of art and science. So it's very, very hard to get rid of that personal side. But, I mean, that is what you have to do. You have to turn that part of your brain off and just pretend like it's somebody else's mix and just give yourself an honest mix crit and fix those things.
1: Yep. Absolutely. You know, it, sometimes it's hard, um, you know, letting go of stuff. I, I, I found myself really getting depressed, uh, over a mix and, and realizing that, you know, that, that I'm kind of afraid to let it go. You know, you get really, really attached to something and you know that as soon as you finish this mix, like that's it. And, uh, forever, you know, that's it forever. Exactly. And, and learning to, uh, to sort of let go of that feeling and 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 do your job and make it as great as you can and can make it and and moving on and uh, I find that a lot, especially mixing the very first song of the record, you know, setting everything up and tweaking everything the, the way that you want it and and finishing the mix and then going oh, you know, it's not really exactly what I wanted and, and I started thinking well what am I gonna do am I sit here and sulk about it you know no you send it to the band you start working on song two and maybe song two will come together in a different way and uh, and you go back and tweak song one to, to fix you know whatever issues you have maybe you nail it in song two maybe you nail it in song three and and that that's really helped me a lot of, of realizing that well this isn't the end you know it's just song one um, you know obviously there's a lot more pressure when you're just mixing the singles of a record, you know, that's that's always hard because you can't really get into a groove. You just kind of do your your natural thing and, and, and hope that it works out. And, uh, you know, most of the time it does, but uh, just mixing singles is always difficult. I, I always prefer mixing records.
0: That, that reminds me of something I learned while tracking drums all the time uh, back at my old studio because it was mainly used as a drum room. So whether it was me, tracking or me assisting, you know, whatever the situation was, uh, or me renting it out to somebody. Those were three things that happened almost year round at my place. And so lots of drum sessions. And mm-hmm. I started to notice that, you know, you know, obviously some budgets are smaller than others. And sometimes you can't take three days or five days to get tone. Sometimes you only have one day. And it's not that we couldn't, get the tones done in one day, of course we could. But if you get them done on day one and then track something morning of day two and then keep working on tones, by the end of day two, it's gonna be way better than it was on day one. And then if you do that for one more day, what you have on day three will be better than day two or one. So if you had, and that notice that that happens Even if we had decided to stop working on drum tones, like it just gets better, um, over the first three days because you're still going to be moving mics and you're still going to be, you know, adjusting a few things. So, so even if you were like, okay, a drum tone time is over, it's, it still kind of is drum tone time. And so I just really started to understand that. It's okay if you don't nail something on day one or on mix one or on song one that really you need to let things come together. So, I mean, sometimes they come together from the beginning, and that's great. But to expect that every time is almost like expecting luck to just present itself. Um, and I've noticed that that's not great thinking. I think it's almost more realistic to expect that it's going to take one, two, three, maybe four tracks before everything gels in a mix or in a drum session. Um, That's right. And as soon as I started thinking about it that way, my my drum productions got a lot better because I knew, okay, by the third night, things are going to be really fucking awesome. So I should like try to get them to hold off as much as possible on pressuring me <laughs> yeah. to start tracking. It, uh, I don't know, it really helped. And so. I would start carrying that over to mixes as well. Like not to kill myself over mix one not being perfect, because it's probably gonna get better on two and then especially on three.
1: Right. And on top of that, you know, like I said, you're you're your worst own enemy. So what you think is garbage, you know, you send it out and you know, before you know it, the band's sending you texts like, dude, this is amazing, the best thing we've ever heard. And to you, it's still dog shit. So you know, keep that in mind too that that what you think is terrible might actually be okay. you know might, might be usable. Um, and at the same time that like you said, the first thing you do might not be the greatest. You know, maybe you need a couple days into it to, to figure it out.
0: Yeah, and there's there's a number of reasons for it. Um, in the drum session example, it could just be that the drummer relaxes and just starts playing with better feel because he's relaxed. Uh, whatever yeah. the case may be, there's so many different factors that go into why something gets better that uh, I, I just think that it's, it's just good to kind of beat yourself up less, if if at all possible. It, the other thing that just uh, everything you've been saying gets me thinking about is, you know, when you have to let a project go... It sucks because, you know, you know, being your own worst enemy, you know it's never perfect, no matter what. You know, you'll always hear the mistakes. And that actually is true for products as well. I mean, no product is ever perfect, especially when you're dealing with digital products like information products or software. Like if you, like, release a course, we released a course Speed Mixing last year and it did great. But... You know, now that it's been a while, I know exactly what it was missing and why it's not perfect. And when we release it again, it's going to have updates to include things that we missed. And we're releasing a drum course on Friday, and it's super comprehensive. But I know for a fact that. If we re-release it, we want to add updates because there's no way that we possibly covered everything. And you know, with a plugin, there's no way that you can possibly account for every single situation that might come up. Um, and so, you will never have a perfect plugin. So you just have to learn to release things. Yeah, let it go, and let them go, um, or you will never, or you'll never get anywhere.
1: Yep, yep, let it go and see what happens. You know, yeah. obviously, do do due diligence and, and try to make it as good as you can, but. Let it go. See what happens and, and adjust afterwards.
0: If you're like most producers, you're dialing a drum sounds the old fashioned way by trial and error, swapping out drums, heads, and mics until you finally find something that works, oftentimes for several exhausting and tedious days. Sound familiar, right? I know I have spent up to a week getting drum sounds in the past before i knew some of this stuff so guess what it doesn't have to be so painful ultimate drum production is our brand new course that teaches you the scientific method for dialing in the perfect drum sound on the very first try exactly the first try not the hundredth try it explains in extreme detail the sonic character of every single component of drum sound with exhaustive profiles of every kind of drum head shell material bearing edge and hoop, as well as ridiculously detailed tutorials on mic selection, placement and room choice, editing and mixing. And when you understand drum tone at such a fundamental, insanely deep level, it's like having a set of tone Legos you can use to easily build the sound you hear in your head. You don't need to guess and check. You just assemble the building blocks however you want. This course is only going to be around for a couple more weeks before we close it for at least a year. To find out more and get access, just head on over to ultimatedrumproduction.com and we'll see you in class. Did you ever have, uh, I guess, maybe earlier in your career, did you ever have like an aversion to sending off the first mix
1: Not so much. I mean, I was a lot more cocky when I was younger because I didn't know shit. (laughs) (laughs) You know, when I was younger, it's just like, yeah, this is the best thing in the fucking world. Have at it. It, You know, no one's going to have comments. And then as you get older, you start figuring out, well, wow. (laughs) I'm not that good. I'm I'm good, but I'm not that good. (laughs) That's funny. That's,
0: you know, that makes a lot of sense. I guess I was just never that cocky. I was always afraid to send them off, and I had to uh, train myself to do it, um, to get comfortable with it.
1: Yeah, I mean, well, you get exposed, you know? It's like you're putting all your cards out, everyone's seeing exactly what you have, And, uh, you know, it does get scary, you know, putting it out. But eventually you just, you know, when you're young, you're cocky, you don't give a shit, you just fucking do it. And, uh, you know, and and, then people start barking back and eventually you start getting cautious about what you do or more aware of what you do. And then it's kind of like a bell curve. And then you get to the other side of the bell curve where you know that what you do is, is pretty good and you just stop giving a fuck. And you just you fucking send it out and... You know, see what some idiot says about their bass guitar or their fucking kick drum tone or whatever. <laughs> Just wait for the comments to roll in. Yeah, for for sure. Um, so we've come to that point in the episode
0: where I would like to ask you some questions that some of our subscribers asked for you. They better be good questions. Some of them are. I'm going to skip the bad <laughs> ones or, or anything that we kind of already covered. No, nope. bad uh, ones, given them to me anyway. We'll only ask the bad ones. How about that? I want to start with this one because it kind of goes back to the old one of the old podcasts that we did, uh, and it's from Patrick Graf. And here goes: in an earlier podcast, you said use wideners in parallel, but filtered it to only affect a specific frequency range on guitars. Um, could you elaborate on why you use them this way and any tips on making it work? Because I've never been successful using a widener this way. Um, and then he also said, it's also been a while since I was into that podcast, so I may have missed something.
1: Well, um, you know, everyone mix, mixes different. Everyone's mix is different. And uh, for me, I always find, just say with, uh, I mean, I only use wideners on guitars. I love to hear guitars that sound like they're, you know, outside of the speaker. You know, it's it's not that hard to do with, with high end and mid range, you know, you crank it up and, and it. It makes the guitar sound wider, um, but it's always the lower mids that seem like they get, you know, centralized. They're always in the center somehow. And uh, with wideners, I end up sending them to a channel. I think I said this last time. You know, send them the widener to a channel and, and boost a lot of like lower mids, a lot of eight hundred and, and yeah. sort of that area, and tuck that up underneath. So you know, your your high end and mid range from the original tracks. Are boosted a little bit, it makes them sound a little wider, and then you tuck up this like ultra wide 800 hertz underneath those guitars, and it it really makes the whole track you know, both tracks sound like they're way wider than the speakers. And uh, I mean, I'm not really sure what else I can add to that, but I'd be curious to
0: see what he was doing because um, I know lots of people tried it and thought it was miraculous just based on the last podcast so here's one from chris bowman um hey dan in conversations you've talked about doing things differently in your studio i'm sure you have has some tried and true methods of capturing exactly what you're looking for sound wise have there been any times in your career that something totally unconventional or downright accidental made it onto your record of yours
1: all the time you know you're always trying something new something different or at least i try to you know, for instance, um, a lot of people were using this, like, little kick sub thing to get a uh, some sort of low end on the kick drum. And uh, for me, it was just always the wrong frequency. And I kind of just reverse engineered what the stuff was doing. And, uh, you know, I found through some research that, you know, back in the day, a lot of people would use uh, PAs, like, subs for PAs as microphones. Uh, wired, you know, they're just wired in reverse. Um, so... For me, a lot of times I'll stick uh, a a sub in front of my kick drum and I'll plug that into a DI and record it and and it just seems to be like the right frequency for a sub for a kick drum. Uh, As far as things accidental, um, yeah, like on a Breaking Benjamin record, um, we we need like a lo-fi sounding vocal. There was like an empty paper towel roll sitting in in the, the booth and I told Ben to pick it up and, and talk through it. And it, it sounded like a, like a lo-fi, like, phase kind of vocal. And, and we ended up recording it and uh, and putting it on a record. You know, don't don't be afraid to experiment with stuff. And, uh, you know, for kids, you know, now that I think about it, you know, it's, it's a, a lot different experience for them. A lot of these kids and a lot of people that are listening to this podcast are are limited by their resources. You know, they're still learning. They're, they have a computer and they're plugging stuff in and, uh, you know, uh, right into their interfaces. And, and they're relying on plugins and stuff like that to give them their sounds. But don't be afraid to pick up a mic, plug it into your interface, and stick it in a weird spot. For uh, another instance, for a record, um, I had a, dr- uh, a drum set in a room and... Uh, next to it was a piano and I noticed when the drummer was playing that there were some cool like reverby kind of harmonics coming off of the piano and uh, I ended up micing up the piano and that that ended up being like the reverb for the drum set you know all sorts of of weird sonic things happen all the time and and just keep your mind open and and kind of try to capture them if we can.
0: I actually tried that piano trick once um, with uh, Matt Brown, um, the drum tech. We tried that when we did a, a monument session uh, for mm-hmm. Creative Live. We actually miked up the inside of the piano. It didn't work for that, but um, I can totally see how it would work in certain situations. You know, Obviously, not every yeah. situation is the same, but yeah, we
1: definitely tried that. It was awesome. You know, when... Uh, With a band like Monuments, uh, there's a lot of articulation and and precision going on. Uh, You know, maybe for a slower band, more of a rock vibe that would have worked well. Yeah, yeah, for sure.
0: I think that was the problem actually. Um Here's a question from Donald Speck. Could I get any details on the Candiria discs you've worked on? That would be amazing. Oh, specifically how you Specifically how you deal with the interplay between the bass and the other instruments in the mix. Mike from Candiria doesn't just copy the guitar line like most bass players. How do you get the guitars in those mixes to be <laughs> full sounding without that constant low-end support?
1: Wow. I mean, Wow, that's old school, Candiria. Um, yeah, <laughs> yeah. Made a record called uh, "Was It What What Doesn't Kill You?" Um, and uh, that was my first introduction to sort of math metal, jazz metal, and uh, where everything was very, very precise. You know, the, the, first of all, the bass player Mike was, I mean, he's just amazing. He plays with his fingers, uh, very, very precise, very, very uh, articulate. And um, the engineer who recorded the, the bass is my good friend, uh, Wayne Davis. I mean, he's just a sonic genius. Uh, and, you know, I put him in a room with the bass player, and he... Uh, he captured all the stuff, uh, which was amazing. Now, on guitar-wise, you kind of have to scoop out—you I mean, have to make space for everything. And uh, this may come as a surprise, but we used a lot of single-coil pickups for those guitars. That a lot sense. of Telecaster on it. Um, so, you know, a lot more mid rangey kind of guitars, uh, and that left a lot of space for the bass. And I, I think that, that may have been the combo that, that you hear, that, that you enjoy. Okay,
0: that sounds actually like it makes a lot of sense. I've had some experience with using single coils on heavy records, and it's surprising what you can get out of them. Uh, I think people need to not write them off as an option.
1: Yeah, oh yeah, they're, they're amazing, especially for heavy stuff. I mean, don't be afraid to take yeah. a telly and jam it into a, a high-gain amp. Uh, you know, obviously... It's single coil. You're going to get some buzz. You're going to get some noise. And and that record was especially difficult because I was in Manhattan. So, like, it was picking up 30 different radio stations. But, you know, you, you kind of figure it out and you turn your guitar to a certain way. You move it around the room until you get the least amount of buzz and, and noise and, and you go for it. Great answer. Um, So, Alec Garnica,
0: I'm sorry if I uh, messed up your name, dude. He said, uh, you talked about a. A few years ago that you were going to release a drum sample pack from the album Riot by Paramore. Do you ever plan on releasing these samples?
1: Yes, yes. So, yeah, years ago, 2007, 2008-ish, somewhere around there. uh, After the session was done, I recorded samples of that full kit. And um, I've been holding on to them uh, you know by the skin of my teeth, and uh, I did plan on releasing them. I still do plan on releasing them and I'm currently designing the virtual instrument for those plugins or for that that library and again it just comes down to uh, the amount of free time that I have and also making making a product that's that's worth releasing um, making something that that someone will be excited to use and Uh, that looks amazing, you know, so my my graphical interface is done. It looks exactly like the SSL I used to to record it. Um, And, uh, you know, now figuring out the programming behind adding in other effects and and stuff like that. Like, you know, I used the SPX-90 on the snare drum a lot. It was a big part of that sound. And uh, and also the uh, RMX-16. You know, a lot of these things... Externally had a big part of the sound that I want to be able to recreate. You know, instead of just recording a sample of the snare drum going through the complex that you can blend in with uh, with the sound that's already there, like I want to be able to create the option for you to be able to tweak that plug in uh, to tweak the reverb to tweak you know all this different stuff and it, it just takes a long time so it, in short yes absolutely plan on releasing it graphics are done libraries have been recorded for 12 10 years whatever it is uh, you know it just comes down to the the time that that I can uh, put aside to program the proper plugin for you guys.
0: I'm sure that lots and lots of people will be very, very excited when that time comes. Um, I'm sure they will. Here's one from Danny Salat. Actually, he's got a few questions. So, uh, what books or sources would you suggest for someone interested in starting to build audio gear and wanting to learn what's going on with modifying circuits instead of using all-in-one kits? And also... And this is my personal favorite question. When will you be doing a Nail the Mix session?
1: Okay. I love these questions. All right. Question one. I spent a lot of time with uh, this guy's name's Ernie Fortunato. uh, And he used to work for SSL back in the day. And he would come and tech my, my console years ago. And by hanging out with him, I picked up a lot of stuff. But he said, you know what? I learned a lot of stuff by reading a book called The Art of Electronics. And the art of electronics, I absolutely recommend to anyone that wants to get into any sort of electronic stuff, DIY stuff. Um, You know, it's written by two guys from Harvard, and it's not like you know super dry, super boring stuff. You know, they're they're hippies, and they explain electronics in a certain way that I understood. And also, they would say, look. Here's all the math behind it. You don't need to know this, 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 or this, but you absolutely need to pay attention to this right here. So, yeah, Art of Electronics. Uh, you you got to read it and understand it, and they start from the the very, very beginning, like, what is electricity? And they move on to uh, different circuits, and, and just by... Looking at pictures, you can pick up, like, okay, well, all right, well, this is uh, the line amp from seventy six. Like, I see the Darlington transistor pair. I see, you know, this. I see that. So, yeah, read that book, and it'll help you. Oh, so uh, just uh, on question number one, um,
0: so basic, So that book is not audio-specific. It's just electronics-specific.
1: It's just, like, look, if you're going to get into electronics, it is all 100% math. That's all you need to know is math. And um, that that book will tell you everything you need to know about math. And if you're not good at math, then, you know, you need to learn. <laughs> Maybe electronics isn't for you, but if you want it to be for you, you, you can learn.
0: It's not for me. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I, uh, I go to people like you or Joey uh, for stuff that requires heavy math. Not, not me. <laughs> Better you guys than me is the way I see it. Absolutely. So uh, question two.
1: So question two. What was question two?
0: When are you coming on Nail the Mix?
1: Oh, my God. I, I've i been wanting to do it for the longest time. And um, the issue I'm finding is, one, it's, it's always hard to find time to set aside for audio education. You know it takes a lot of time to be able to teach someone to do something right and uh, and to show them what you do. And there's always that that fear of like, well, I'm kind of laying all my cards out here. I'm showing everyone exactly what I do, and that's how I feed my family, which is tough. And the other problem is it's i'm tr- I'm having trouble finding, The right project to do it on. I'm sure there are tons of projects, you know, Breaking Ben and Paramore, Pierce the Veil, you know, that people would love to do. But I I always kind of see it as as a higher thing of what's the best, you know, if I was going to do this, what's the best learning project to do? And I feel like if I did nail the mix, which I'm totally open to, um, I feel like it would have to be a combo thing. It would have to be like nail the recording plus nail the mix plus, you know, uh, this is the track that goes in your portfolio builder. And, uh, you know, just, just trying to find the right project to do that is, is very difficult for me. I'm not sure what that should be.
0: Well, now that I know what it would take to make you do it, I can come up with a, with a solution for all those Things and uh, the thing that uh, that I will say though about the uh, laying all the cards on the table thing is that no matter what you put in an education session, you can't show people your ears or your brain. You know, so i I feel like if if it really worked that way, then every single one of our students would sound exactly like Joey. Uh, Right, you know. Or, I mean, Joey hasn't done one in a while. I'm just saying that as an example. But it hasn't been the case at all. So there is just, I feel like there's a level of of expertise and just understanding of audio that is unique to you. And that no one will ever be able to get, no matter what they know how to do, Um and that, that's kinda, that's kind of my argument for why it's not giving away the farm because you can't give them you can't give them you. And that's the most important part of any mix in my opinion.
1: That's very true. So and, and if, if I was gonna, a kid and I was going to learn, the, the way that I learned is that I, I interned at a bunch of different studios and I became chief engineer at a big studio, and I was able to watch a bunch of different producers work. And um, if I was going to do it, I would want them to learn the cross-pollination effect of how one person influences another person, influences another person. And, you know, being able to see a bunch of different people, you know, trying to figure that out is, uh, you know, is also a thing for me of, of maybe if I was going to do something like that where I'm teaching something is trying to figure out how to teach someone how how I learned, whatever that means. I, I,
0: I do think that real life is the best way for sure. Abso- absolutely. Um, it's It's so, if I look back at my own history, the times where I had someone way better than me to learn from were the times that I had the most progress, hands down. Absolutely. And they made a massive, massive difference. So here's... One from Zaylin Ciganiero, and I'm sorry if I got your name wrong. What albums have you had a hand in writing? You know, vocal arrangements or rearrangement or vocal melodies, yada, yada, whatever. And what was that process like for you?
1: I feel like part of that process in, in every record that I do, when you're sitting in that producer chair, it's ultimately your responsibility to guide this band through their whole recording process. There, I can't think of a time where I I haven't suggested a vocal melody or come up with a a bunch of vocal harmonies or arrangements uh, or guitar parts. Um, You know, I think that just comes with the job. I'm not sure what the rest of that question was, but it happens all the time. Yeah, I think the stuff like my interpretation of his
0: question just sounds like stuff that producers do normally. I mean, uh, aren't you supposed to help them realize the best version of the song possible? Absolutely. You know, then there is that fine line between what counts as production and what counts as writing. But I still think that no matter what, it's your job to help the song shine.
1: So absolutely. Whatever it takes. That's right. And and so it basically comes down to, yeah, all the time. If someone's singing something you don't like, you fucking say something about it. If you have a better idea, you you put it out. That's you're there to guide the band. Yeah. Exactly.
0: And uh, here is our final question. It's from Sean O'Shaughnessy. And he's wondering what's a sound or tone that you've been seeking to recreate that has eluded you? To recreate? That. Yeah, I, I'm is not an sure what he question. meant by recreate. I, I, I'm going to rephrase his question. All right. Um, this is the rephrased version. What's a sound or tone or tone that you've been seeking to create that has
1: eluded you? Wow. Uh, yeah, I don't know. I mean,. I kind of I kind of go for it when I do it. Um, although, obviously, there are a ton of influences when you hear something that you're just like, wow, I, you know, that's fucking dope. I never thought of that. Uh, you know, if it comes down to that, you know, there are tons and tons of things. There, there are, dude, any vocal harmony from Queen. Like, if you can fit that into anything you're doing, uh, you're golden. You know, it's 30 years old, whatever, but... You know, if you can you can emulate that, you are golden. <laughs> I agree. You know, I hear a lot of like creative bands uh, out there, um, uh, minus the bear, do tons and tons of awesome guitar effects. You know, people that that really understand their instrument and they experiment with different things. You know, those are the things that that, that I look for and that I try to, to emulate when I'm working on projects, something, like, anything like that.
0: I totally agree about the uh, the queen harmonies they're yeah unbelievable the best so dan yeah. thank you so much for coming on the podcast it's been awesome catching up and having you on again and hopefully we don't take three years <laughs> before the next one
1: <laughs> well look all right i'll tell you what the next nail the mix i want to mix along Give me the session. I want to do a mix and, and throw it up there and see what people think. Uh, dude, uh, The have you heard the song we're doing this month? The Carnival
0: track. No, what are you doing, dude? It's fucking amazing. It's uh, maybe one of the best engineered songs we've ever had. It's a holy shit. Forster Savell, Australian producer mixer, is the uh, is is the guy, and the band is an Australian band called Carnival. That uh, I don't know if you've heard of them or not. They're really. Big in Australia, and they're very well known in like the periphery scene. But they don't sound anything like that. It's okay. weird. like that scene loves that band, but the band sounds more like Tool and Radiohead in a modern kind of way. It, they're really, really good. I'll send you that. It's phenomenal.
1: Do it. I mean, are the mixed polls closed? Can I can I enter in this contest? No, what can I do here?
0: <laughs> There's still time. <laughs> Okay, well,
1: send me the tracks.
0: Still time. I want everybody
1: yeah. to hear what I
0: did. I, I will send you those right away. They're really, really good. I love the drums. Hell Just yeah. stellar. So,
1: yeah, I'll Let send those easy. to you right now. Fuck yeah. Cool. All right. Well, I'm mixing. I'm back to mixing now. Shit. Awesome. <laughs> well, thanks for coming on, man. Thank you so much for having me. I enjoyed this. To get in touch with the URM podcast, visit urm.com slash podcast
0: and subscribe today.